Welcome to Market Scales, The Trust Revolution, How Trust Unlocks the Future. Hosted by the CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security, here's technology entrepreneur, Luke Fox. Hello and welcome to The Trust Revolution. Today we are going to explore what trust means to drones flying in the highway of the sky. Joining me to understand this is Ken Stewart, President and CEO of the Northeast UAS Airspace Integration Research Alliance, also known as NewAir. Ken has deep expertise in the wireless telecommunications and cloud-based software market with a specialization in building enterprise SaaS, federated digital marketplaces, and platforms. He formerly served as the CEO of Eros, a GE aviation company, where he led innovation, development, and commercialization of unmanned traffic management systems and services. He began his career in engineering and management positions at both IBM and GTE, and then went on as an executive with venture capital and private equity-backed companies, commercializing and scaling pre-revenue startups and transforming organizations for growth. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And so, Ken, just as we start off this discussion today, can you tell me a little bit about your journey and how trust has helped shape it? Sure. Um, you know, it's an interesting question because you kind of, if you take a look back in your career, you can see so many facets of trust. Um, early in my wireless career, we created a company within GTE called GTTSI. And it was really about, if you remember back in the early days of wireless, when you went from, say, Tampa to Orlando, you had to force register your phone. You had to do like a star one eight or a star one nine. It didn't just register. What year are we talking about? Uh, probably, you know, late eighties, early nineties. Okay. Before my time, I don't remember it, but <laughs> you know, like bag phone days. <laughs> gotcha. Sounds like a pain in the butt. Though. Yeah. You know, it was before we had seamless wireless networks everywhere. Um, but the company we created was essentially the, we managed what was called the industry negative file. So if, if a, a, a wireless carrier, you know, today we have, you know, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile, but there were 5,000 in the country at one point. And if any of them had somebody who was like a non-pay or a stolen phone, they wouldn't want it to register in a different market because if that phone was used, they would own that market dollars through its bilateral relationship. So we own what was called the industry negative file. And so all these companies trusted us to maintain that negative file so they wouldn't get, you know, charges that really, you know, weren't happening on their their network, their network, or ones that they couldn't go back and bill for because they were fraudulent. And that evolved over time to not just be here in the U.S., but as that company grew. And it was amazing. It was like we started with 26 people, ended up spinning out, became a billion-dollar business. Um, but we started that in the U.S., and then we started expanding to Southeast Asia, Latin America, Canada, South America, Europe, and it became one of the biggest clearinghouses um, in the world. So every time you, tra- you travel, say, from the U.S. to another country, to be able to register, to be able to authenticate, we manage that authentication process back to the home network. We manage the authorization based on the data we had as you as a subscriber to allow you to use certain services. And then we had to account for it so we could track all your usage so that the home carrier could build a visited Wow. Okay. I mean, that is an immense amount of power all in one company. How? I mean, essentially, you have the kill switch for every cell phone. Like how, how, how do you develop that sense of trust and yeah, to I be mean, able to manage every, all of these companies? Like they're all dependent on you. Yeah, it really, it really was an interesting place to create this little entity. Like I said, we started with this industry negative file 
And it was really interesting how the technology in the clearinghouse, the financial aspect took hold of it. The technology piece became like mobile IP. How could you, you know, when you have all these phones on networks, clearly you're going to have some collisions with the same IP address with all the data, right? And so what we would do is ensure that we did the proper address translation for it as it went from one network to another. But then we could see every time it had a call set up and the call was terminated, every time it had a data session, we captured all that. And we were that third party, that trusted third party between the two entities. And when you think about a federated marketplace, right, you've got a bilateral between the two different carriers that we helped put in place. And then we managed as a third party, independent third party to facilitate that because the roaming happens in both directions. And you're right. It became a massive business because, you know, if you think they're, you know, thousands of wireless carriers around the globe, you have to manage one relationship to all thousands of those and vice versa. So it's a massive platform. Wow. That's, that's insane. And it really is a force monopoly. Like the, the, the value you're offering is that it is a monopoly. You are the clearinghouse that everybody has to go to, everybody trusts because everybody else trusts. Yeah, in a way that did kind of happen. Now, there were there were always two sides to the cellular, the A side and B side. And so what we ended up happening after years, I mean, that, that was a very long journey for that company to get to that position. But what you ended up having, you'd have these like the tell cells of the world and different larger um, telephone companies, excuse me, telephonicas of the world that would say, I've got cellular wireless carriers in multiple countries, I'm going to peer those myself, but then I'll peer them through you with all my other roaming partners. And it was kind of a natural monopoly. But the thing about it that, that worked is we were this independent third party that provided the auditing. Like, and then that, that evolved into fraud detection. So, you know, if somebody tried to recreate that same SIM card or that mobile in another country, you could actually detect that too. And real-time data transfer between the, the countries to stop the fraud. So... Like, was this data encrypted or how did you protect that? Sure. So most of the encryption that's used in the wireless comes out of like the GSMA or IEEE or the three GPP2 standards. And so these organizations come together and they say, here's the encryption and the security we're going to use. And we were part of that part of that group. And we would put those standards on our platform so that, you know, really was if you think about how secure mobile networks are today. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the numbers are around the GSMA encryption of SIM cards, but it's it's highly secure. <laughs> Absolutely. And so it the that data itself is secure, but then you're kind of like the switchboard or you were kind of the switchboard to make it all happen. Because if you didn't have that trust, if you didn't have this single entity, it would be it'd be chaos and maybe we wouldn't have the infrastructure that we have today and the the seamless cell phone use. Yeah, I mean it was I think you're right. It, it it's interesting because a lot of the people that started that company when I watched the cellular world kind of mature over time many of the people within that company became Cineverse Technologies, really flooded the market in really high level positions, creating new services, new business models. Um, so it's amazing how that company helped kind of invent a lot of that space and tie it all together. Wow. And this seems so apropos to the natural progression of what you did next. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit about that and the, the whole new world you're in, but in reality, it's it's dawning on me it's really nothing new for you. You've, you've been here, done this before. <laughs> I, I wish that was the case. But, you know, I always say to people, we're all subject matter experts in a prior life doing something. Then you have to go do that with a bunch of new subject matter experts in a new world and have to figure out how to do it together. <laughs> so, gotcha. so that's the challenges we have to overcome. Well, you know, the interesting path that I took to coming into UAVs or UTM was that 
I was at a small startup in Virginia doing the first democratized platform of Spectrum, wireless Spectrum, where you could get Spectrum on demand for like private LTE networks. And GE Ventures had approached me as this role to take on this new business they were developing called UTM. Wait, real quick, Spectrum on demand. What, 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 what is that and who needs it? So everybody needs Spectrum. And if you think about every wireless carrier in the world, they buy Spectrum for billions of dollars, right? And they then create networks around that. Well, what we had done, we worked with the FCC to be able to give Spectrum on demand. So it really reduced the cost of Spectrum from like billions of dollars to small millions of dollars. So it was like Airbnb for Spectrum? It's exactly what it was. It's exactly what it was. Is we didn't own the Spectrum. We were just a clearinghouse for it. So and it was a new innovative band. It wasn't for all bands of Spectrum, but it was for a very specific band of Spectrum. And the challenge with Spectrum is in the U.S., 90% of it's run by the DOD. And so to get access to it, that means they've got to give up that space, which means they have to pull their facilities and capabilities out of it. So in this case, these were like radar systems on uh, aircraft carriers. Well, they don't really operate in the U.S. And if they do, we have bigger concerns. Yes. <laughs> but the idea was how could we share it? How can we take it when they don't need it, give it out to those that want to use it, generate revenue back to the entities, right? So, so the military, would, in the previous auctions, they would have to say, we're going to give you this spectrum to take 15 years for us to move out of it. So, you know, AT&T, wow. Verizon would spend billion dollars on something they couldn't get access to for 15 years, depending upon the location. And what we were able to do is say, look, you can share it. Real time, right now, you don't have to wait for 12 or for 14 years. You might have to give it up temporarily if the, the Navy or the, the DOD needs it, but it's available now. So it's this really kind of cutting edge way to distribute spectrum on demand. Fascinating. And so that's that makes a lot more sense as then you talk about kind of the next step because spectrum is such a huge issue with autonomous systems. Yes, yes. And it's, it's airspace, right? You're managing propagation from radios, which is... Now you're managing propagation models around UAVs that are just moving through the air. It's a little more challenging. Um, but yeah, I was approached by GE Ventures. They said, hey, we have this opportunity. We're going to create this company around unmanned traffic management. We'd like for you to come and lead this. And I'm like, I'm not an aviator. Like, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> and this this conversation probably went on for like nine months. <laughs> wow. Finally, I got it. I was like, wow. I said, you know, this federated wireless piece, this is really only going to work in the U.S. So it's really limited in the way that it's going to grow because most other countries don't have the wireless spectrum limitations that we do. And so so I joined and that begun my inroads to um, to the UTM UAS world. And the first thing I got assigned to when I came on board, there were like three of us in the company, was the remote ID arc. <laughs> that 2017, right? That was my introduction to the UAS world. <laughs> and and for those who, uh, who don't appreciate the joke here, what, what, tell us a little bit about remote ID and why it's important for drones. Sure. Well, uh, so remote ID is essentially a digital license plate for a drone. You know, up until the ruling we just got last year, um, there really wasn't a way to ID a drone flying through the air. And so anybody can get out flying, you'd have 15 drones and nobody knows who's who. And, you know, one of those might be doing bad things. Who knows? How do you pick that one out of a crowd? And so, you know, we started that very instance on that rulemaking committee to start formulating what remote ID would become. And, you know, we've seen an instance of it come out. We've got a policy now around broadcast. We don't have network yet, um, but certainly a goal for us all to aspire to is to get both of those cases put into place. But, uh, but yeah, and it was only four years in the making. I always tell people that those four months of working at that arc is great, is great getting all the, the drone, you know, by fire hose, <laughs> the drone world by fire hose. 
but um but it was um four months I'll probably never get back out of my life of worrying about <laughs> how difficult it is to make policy. And aged four years, right? So why why is that so difficult? Can can we explore that a little bit? It seems like okay, you know, remote ID, license plate for drones, it's easy. You attach the license plate to the drone or what you know, what what makes that so difficult? I think it was I think it was the I think a couple things. I think there were two things. One in particular was the way that the FA went about it. They tried to do all three things at the same time. What is remote ID? How do you implement it? What's the technology? And you really got to start with one, move into the next, and solve with the third. And we were trying to do all three of them simultaneously. So two groups were really waiting on the first group. <laughs> um, and then the second aspect that made it challenging is the diverse groups of people that came inside. And a lot of them obviously had, you know, all um, objectives to get products and services out in this space. And so, you know, we were participating really as somebody who would just enable it through whoever the providers were of it. And I can even remember going back then and putting together kind of a three-page slideshow to talk about SSL certs and TSL certs and be like, look, we've already got a solution. Anybody can buy into this. Works at every website in the world. But, you know, we have product manufacturers, telco carriers, everybody else that wanted a piece of it versus how do we actually get this going? And so I think there were just a lot of challenges by different industry players that were looking for, you know, opportunity early on. Hmm. And so what is what did you learn either what worked or what didn't work and should have worked when you're trying to build trust amongst every you know players who have a sincere honest objective that maybe is very different than the other reason that other person is uh, spending 4 months of their lives working yeah, it's it's hard to come to a common place when somebody has a financial incentive for something and, and you're looking at it from a from an industry perspective and saying this is what's best especially from a you know, U.S. safety perspective, you know, there's there's a lot to putting a drone in the air. And I, I you know, don't ever want to um, encumber hobbyists from doing this, you know, but but as we start really developing the commercialization of this, it becomes very important is how we manage this. Hmm. Do you have do you have any examples of times you've uh, during the arc or other times where you've had to create that consensus amongst disparate stakeholders who have strong interests otherwise but also as you mentioned this higher this uh this hierarchy of interest of safety like we can all agree to safety we all have our financial interests we're all trying to make it safe how do you build consensus in a group like that well i think my role was made a little bit easier to do that in that they put me really in kind of group one with law enforcement to kind of figure out what what is what do they want from it and so i think what made it easy for me was i was able to articulate what technology was available to them because they, they didn't, you know, these were helicopter pilots out of the sheriff's agencies for the most part, and they're not necessarily tech savvy. They may be on helicopters, right? I shouldn't say that as a blanket statement, but in terms of what can we do and provide as a way to get an application like this up and running. And so I think what I was able to do during that time, and I, I think I made some good friends with the policymakers during this, as they saw my intentions anyways, was to be able to tell them what was available. So that it kind of opened up their eyes, say, okay, there's not just one thing. It's not just a SIM card, you know, it's not just some emitting chip or something along those lines. They say, oh, there's a lot of different options out here that are available to us to look at. Hmm. And so helping to educate and ensure that everybody's operating off the same assumptions. Yes, yes. And understanding what those assumptions are. <laughs> Even the full market span of what's available to them. Gotcha. And how easy it is to implement. <laughs> right. And then working from there to figure out, okay, what are the requirements to break this down? Uh, to not let uh, your creativity be limited by knowledge, lack of knowledge. Exactly, yeah. 
That that's fascinating. So from there, Remote ID has you know hobbled along over the last four years outside of Remote ID. What is it that you know is required to build the trust framework for drone technology? So I, you know, this is actually something I, I talk to regulators, policy people, different agencies about all the time, and that is really this trusted autonomous framework for UTM. And that is, you know, each component of this has to have some level of cybersecurity or, or trust, you know, we use that term. If you look at every other industry, you know, agriculture has um, the USDA, ISC, utilities has what they call the NERC. There are different groups that come together to figure out what are the right levels of cybersecurity standards of trust that we have in this industry. And we have a bunch of different industry bodies, but nobody's really coalescing around this. And I saw this problem early on because I federated wireless networks for years and knew what that took. And today we have all these USSs that are kind of standalone. And we have some states now that are looking to peer them. Real quick, USS. Oh, um, UTM, you know, uh, what do they call them? I don't, I can't, I can never remember what the acronym is. UAS Service Supplier, right? Yes, thank you. UAS Service so, Supplier, yeah. And what, 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 and maybe just take a step back. UAS is? So UAS consists of a drone, a pilot, and whatever application they're using to fly that aircraft with. Could be a phone, could be joysticks, or whatever they use. So that's, that's your UAS, and the UAV is the vehicle itself. Well, these, the people that fly these need access to airspace, and so they, may or may not use a USS to get it. One example of that is using Lance, low altitude authorization and notification capability uh, to access like airspace around airports. And so there's all these programs, various programs with the FAA and NASA to peer and exchange this information. And one of the, through the, uh, the last two, what they call the UPPs, and don't ask me what that acronym means, I can never, um, UAS pilot program is probably what it means. Yep. But um, they wanted to peer several of the USS providers. <clears throat> and what I noticed was that some of the USS providers had gone through the Lance program and some of them had not. Well, the ones that go through the Lance program by regulation and contract with the FAA have got to, you know, implement some level of cybersecurity. These others, I have no idea what those levels of cybersecurity are. And so I'm like, you're asking us to peer, even if it's just for testing, an environment that's highly secure with an unknown. And that, to me, created an issue. I'm like, this is a, this is a cyber issue. We've got a trust issue. We don't know what level that they can attest to. And I'm not aware of any auditing that the FAA does currently on these USS providers to ensure that they actually meet the criteria. And so why is that important? You, you you have this highly secure system and you're saying if I connect it to these other people who maybe don't have as secure of a system or there's no one auditing it or insuring it, then it's it's you trusting them. But it's not like, can you tell us why, why is that a problem? Why is you connecting a secure system to an unsecure system? Because we don't know what level of secure their systems have, what level of authoritative data, how are they managing, you know, DOD attacks and things like that. You know, those are all the things that we're concerned about is, is the data that we're exchanging authoritative? Is it not been manipulated? Is there Can bad data it? in there? Yes, yeah, not trusted. That's exactly it. And so they could be feeding things in your system and you have these other partners who have trusted data, but you might not be able to tell a difference because everybody has to be treated as if you're all coming together exchanging data, then how do you know? I mean, it's kind of the weakest link. That's exactly it. It's a federated marketplace, right? We're all yeah, federating yeah. Our, our, our networks together. 
And so what's the minimum viable product that we should all have to make sure that we all trust each other? And I'm not saying that any of them didn't meet a certain level of cybersecurity, sure. but there's no attestation to it because they're not a provider of something to date that they can show that they've met that. And so when you think about the way the UTM comes together, you've got a USS provider and you've got the SDSPs, so the supplemental data service providers that could be providing weather or airspace data, but they're basically feeding data into a USS. So, you know, there are ways that you can work with your providers as a USS to say, you have to meet these minimum requirements to work with me. But then you go connect to four or five other USSs who all have SDSPs feeding data into them. And now you can imagine it gets exponentially more difficult. That trust. How far down the rabbit hole do they go and trust that? Like we were working on different types of, and I, I don't want to use this term flippantly, but we were developing AI around data feeds that we got because we knew we could put certain secure trusted protocols in place. But how do we know that even if the data looked good, that it wasn't being changed or altered? And so we wanted to learn about the data coming in to see if there's any uniquenesses that came out of the blue somewhere. So all these things are, how do we learn to be a better provider? And when, when I was previously at Eros, we had a lot of state and local public safety type of uh, users on our platform. And we wanted to ensure that we had the utmost cybersecurity. In fact, we even had put our platform into a FedRAMP secure environment. So I couldn't think of a more secure environment to put your platform right. into than that. <laughs> That's that's fascinating. So what I hear you saying is that you in those situations where you couldn't absolutely guarantee the trustworthiness of all the data that's coming in or maybe of the direct people around you but you know they're working with people working with people and it's this giant ecosystem uh using that you look to use artificial intelligence to determine the trustworthiness of the data coming in to see what stands out to flag it and maybe you know what, what what then would you do if you said this data doesn't look trustworthy it's not coming from a trustworthy source that we just by default trust All right so so we hadn't evolved to that level yet you know part of the challenge of a nascent industry like this is everything's kind of new right all this data is the first time we're seeing it being used in a certain capacity and so what do you do with that you know one of the things that we did with uh, onboarding our customers if we simplified that process through like multi-form factor authentication on the mobile devices that our law enforcement agencies would use. So we always knew who was coming onto that platform from a user perspective. Um, but the data feeds are a whole different story. You know, we, we had only been doing it commercially for probably a year. So we were still in the learning phases. And that's why I say I don't, I don't want to use AI flippantly. Um, but those were the things that we were developing so that we could automate that whole process. Absolutely. And it's it's a it's a fascinating approach as many people seek to understand, you know, if you don't have absolutely trustworthy data, what can you do to make it trustworthy? And so that takes, you know, going fast forward now to today at New Air, where it's you're not just responsible for a single company, but really New Air, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're responsible for more of the industry and helping a lot of companies come together to really build the industry. What, 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 what is that like? What is, what does New Air do? So, well, New Air is two things. First and foremost, we operate a UAS test site on behalf of the FAA, one of the official FAA UAS test sites. Why is that important? 
before we go to number two, before we go to number two, like a test site, what, what is that and why is it important? Sure. So that's where, you know, the industry can come and test different applications. Like we've been doing a lot of parachute testing for ops over people. So if you've got a drone and you want to fly for operations over people, you know, we've got, I'll call it flexible airspace that the FAA has allowed us to secure. And then we provide access to it. We don't manage it. Obviously, the FAA manages that. Um, but we can provide access to that with our team to make sure that we all comply with the regulatory rules. Uh, but they're a little more flexible for test sites in that you can fly beyond visual on a site under certain conditions. So it gives us the ability and our customers the ability to come here and test out capabilities or, or design concepts of operations and things like that to, to see how they can fly advanced operations, you know, beyond visual on a site, ops over people, things like that, higher altitudes. So just just to understand that you say ops over people, what like a parachute with ops over people? Like, can you paint a picture of what that looks like? Like in the real world, why why does you know the average person care about parachutes, ops over people, UAS? Because they don't want to get hit by a drone. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. And so um, so ops over people has been you know we don't have a type cert aircraft. So when you talk about trust, you know type cert aircraft means something's achieved a certain level of certification that you can trust it to operate in a certain way. But we don't have that yet. And so what we're saying is what are the alternatives that we can do to say, well, if, if, an, if an aircraft or a vehicle has a problem, it can eject a parachute and therefore, you know, come down much softer landing and, and not do any harm to anybody that could be underneath the area of operations. I see. So if you're like at a stadium or a parade and you see a drone of a news crew above your head, you can trust that worst case scenario, it's coming down with a parachute rather than crash, <laughs> crashing into your head. Sure. There, there's other solutions like frangible drones, too, that basically, you know, collapse on impact, things like that. So there's different ways to solve that problem. Um, but those frangible drones are much more lower altitude, much more simpler operations. But, but yeah, those are the things that we test at our location. And then we have a corridor that we operate. And it's primarily a surveillance corridor. We've got multiple uh, radar systems and other types of sensors, not just radar uh, throughout this 50 mile corridor that, you know, we can surveil all the air traffic in that area. Okay. And so other than seeing what's happening up there, like what, why is that important? Why is that important to the drone industry and to, you know, your, your average person? Sure. So, so the, you know, the safety case for getting drones to actually operate commercially at scale requires, you know, a safety case and how do you build that <laughs> safety case? So we now have a couple of years worth of data over all the traffic in that 50 mile corridor. And the thing that one of the things that really drew me to New Air was when I looked at that corridor and I realized there's almost 750,000 people under that between Oneida County and Onondaga County. In what state? A New York state. New yes. York state. And so just kind of the Syracuse area of New York, so central New York. And I said, wow, there's a there's a there's an interesting consumer base there because they're very used to drones. They've got a test site there. Syracuse International, Hancock Airport, has had Reapers taking off for years next to commercial aircraft. Very big drones. <laughs> yes, very big drones, right? Yeah, very big and lethal drones, right? Drones are yeah. lethal things. But but the community is essentially open to drones already. In fact, they're probably thinking, why aren't you delivering my stuff with a drone already? Yeah, I'm already paying the price of having them fly. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And so, you know, our goal now is to really start looking at how do we start commercializing that? So we're, we're really start to embark on a, a path to say land and expand. You can land at the test site, test anything you want, and then let's expand it in the corridor. So, you know, we're trying to say we've got the surveillance, we've got the safety case. 
Um, how do we now start developing that commercial capability to really show that there is a there is a commercial model for UTM that is you know scalable and economically viable for the industry. So that's what we're in the process of now. And I think by the end of this year, you'll start seeing, you're already seeing some like healthcare deliveries take place up there and some other things that we're going to start scaling. Um, but the interesting thing, when I go back to saying there's 750,000 consumers there, when I thought about this from a package delivery perspective, and I went and looked at the volume of packages, that's about 29 million parcels under five pounds that will be delivered traditionally to that consumer base, whether it be B2B or B2C this year. So my goal is to say, how can we start using drones to do that? That's that's a huge opportunity, especially as you're looking to scale. And we talk about UTM, that's UAS traffic management, essentially the highway in the sky for drones. What What is the, uh, like, there's been some skeptics of drone delivery that say, you know, it's just a really sexy way to get your Amazon delivery. Uh, what do you, what do you say to people who say that? Like, what what are the things that are being delivered? Why is it is there really value in being done by a drone versus the traditional means? Well, I think people don't see the value of it. It appears sexy because it's not a commodity yet. It's not like something you just go do, right? There are some regulatory challenges you still have to overcome. And so, I think when I start looking, especially at medical delivery, if you think about the way that the logistics world, right? A van's going to leave some distribution center with a bunch of stuff to go deliver throughout the day. Well, there's constant requests, especially in the medical space, for acute patient needs that are very expensive deliveries. You know, um, th- these could be upwards of $15, $20 where you've got you've to have a vehicle come pick something up, deliver it, might have to be refrigerated. There's other requirements around that. Um, and we think that, you know, with a drone, that's far more economically viable if you can get that to scale. And so our goal is to really focus on that segment of the market. Uh, especially within our corridor to start getting those types of deliveries because we think there's economics already there that'll be beneficial. So when people look at it and say, well, it's sexy, what's sexy about it? It's going to be more cost effective than the current <laughs> traditional means of delivering that, which, you know, post COVID, everybody's going to look for cost savings. Absolutely. So it's cost savings to both the people delivering it, it's cost savings to the people who are receiving those life saving, uh, life maintaining medical needs. Uh, and then, of course, then that also potentially scales out to deliveries, uh, uh, package deliveries and other parcels. When when we talk about drone delivery, I think there's there's an interesting divide between people who say it is the biggest value is going to be in the rural areas where it's expensive to get things um, versus others who say, well, the rural areas are going to be too expensive to do drone delivery. It's going to be in the dense urban areas. I'm curious, in your corridor how would you characterize the 750,000 people? You know, is that rural or urban? And what are you thinking from a scalability side? Wh- which one wins? So it's all of the above. It's both okay. urban, the downtown populace of Syracuse. We've got Hancock at one end. And then the other end, we have Griffiths, which is a former uh, Air, uh, Army or Air Force base that's been bracked and opened up for commercial services. And then between there, you've got farmland and water. So, and, and, and you've got suburban areas. So I think it's all of the above that we'll be able to address. But to address the question you asked about urban or suburban, I think you know there are challenges in urban environments to get drones flying in volume, just because of the density of the population, buildings, and other things. When you mentioned you know the the last mile in the rural areas becomes challenging because of the cost. It's the same problem we've had for broadband for years, getting broadband out to rural areas. I mean, there's still a large percentage of the U.S. that doesn't have access to broadband because of the cost of getting it out there. 
But I would suggest that even that is probably going to be more economically viable um, for drones than it would be for vehicles. You know, there's this whole exchange of costs. You've got a truck that has to go to a specific destination. If that truck could also carry a drone and hit five destinations with a, with a drone at the same time, that's going to be far more efficient than how it's doing it today. And obviously, you've got lower population densities and things like that, which should make that easier. Um, but you also don't have the, the, the knowledge of the, the airspace and what's gone through that. You know, we still have this challenge of emergency helicopters and things like that that are kind of ad hoc. You know, there's no rhyme or reason as to when those come through the airspace. And so how do you manage those pieces? And I do think, you know, we're still operating like we have two different systems, a UTM and an ATM. And we're starting to merge some of this. ATM, real quick, ATM. Air traffic management for manned manned aircraft. Okay. That's the thing that's been around for a long time <laughs> that keeps the airplanes from crashing into each other. Yes, but it's all voice activated today. It's not digitized <laughs> like, like drones are. But because of some of the rules around that, you know, there's certain classes of airspace where manned aircraft can fly and not emit any signals. There's no remote ID for those types of environments that's being broadcast from those vehicles. The last frontier, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but there's a challenge getting them to adopt some of the newer technology and it's very cost effective. It's not impactful to them, but it creates a real conundrum when you're trying to fly a drone in an airspace and you can't sense and avoid those manned aircraft, which, you know, have human beings on them. So uh, because you know, they're refusing to identify themselves. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like they need to trust the drone world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's exactly. So the drone world can trust that they're not going to crash into an aircraft. Right? Exactly. And, and when I was at GE to solve that problem, we had to bring, you know, mobile radar systems out to ensure that we didn't interfere with any aircraft because, you know, ranchers and farmers can just take off from those ranches and farms and fly all over the place as long as they're in the right kind of airspace. Well, we're flying in that airspace with a 70 pound drone. So that's a big drone. You don't want to have any collisions with that. So, um, and then there are challenges with the types of radar systems. There's a part 87, part 90, whether you can use the radar systems for these types of aircraft separation, or is it really just radio location? There's a debate going on with the spectrum route at the FAA, um, who will push back on that. But, um, but it's all about increasing the safety and awareness of the aircraft that's in the air at the end of the day. And so then what, what is, the, what is the, the thing that once it's done, you will say like this, the, it's the growth point of the drone, like the drone delivery where it can really uh, democratize the airspace and really provide benefit to everybody on the ground. What, what's that linchpin that really has to be pulled? Yeah, so obviously radar is not the key for that because we can't afford to put radar across the entire United States. That's <laughs> just not, not tangible. But um, I really think it's going to be the next phase. We just had two pieces of policy come out, both remote ID and operations over people. So we now have ways we can move forward there. But I really think it's going to come down to these aircraft certs that come out, these type certification that you know we're hoping to get I hope we'll see it this year. You know, I'm hearing it seems like it's going to be early next year. Um, but those are going to be really timely that these aircraft meet a certain level that they can perform certain functions. And, you know, there are packages being delivered today, but it's done with daisy chain visual observers. And that's not cost effective and not economically viable. What does that mean real quick? Daisy chain virtual, uh, visual observers. Sure. So you've got a pilot flying the drone, but once he flies beyond visual line of sight, he needs supporting eyes. And so you put people out to monitor that with their eyes that are in you know, communications with the pilot to make sure that everything's still operating 
per the plan. I want to make sure we captured how ridiculous the cur- it currently has to be. <laughs> so if you want to deliver a package and it's a $4 delivery, you know, having three people daisy chain is probably not the most economically viable way to do that. It's by far the most advanced way of doing it today, but but it's restrictive in terms of its economics. Gotcha. And keeping those eyes on it throughout the whole time. And so these type, uh, the type certifications will essentially be like uh, a, what allows cars to be made to certain standards to go drive on the highway, right? Versus why you can't just go and put together a go-kart and get on hi- <laughs> Highway 60. Exactly. You know, I always say it's like it's almost kind of even a, a lower, you know, a more simpler tech analogy than that. It's like, you know, you don't use a car to haul things, right? You use a pickup truck. So a pickup truck is certified to carry X amount of weight, right? Down a highway safely. And so if you think about drones, some will do package delivery. Some will do, you know, agriculture. There's all kinds of different verticals. Some will do insurance needs. Some will do, you know, public safety applications. And all those have very specific needs. And that's how you'll get those type certs put through and where they can perform those operations and how they can perform those operations. Fascinating. Well, it's it's super interesting, especially as we look at how we go from cars to airplanes to drones and the, all of the value that that offers. In, in our final moments together, I'm, I'm curious, Ken, as you look at the, the world and how it's evolving, how do you see trust taking, uh, taking shape in a different way and how it's transforming you know, how we operate, how we live? Well, I think a lot like other technologies, you know, you have early adopters that'll buy into the technology and there'll be your slow comers towards the end. But I think I think if we all just took a step back and looked at this as a transportation issue, you know, we already have places today where trains can come in and meet a bus, the bus go into airports, you already have this intermodal transportation. At the end of the day, if you're ordering something on Amazon, you don't care how it gets delivered. You don't care if it's somebody on an electric scooter an Uber car, a UPS truck, you don't care. You're just saying, I want this and I want it delivered. You know, drones are just another way to do that intermodal delivery. And there is no like point A and point B. There's multiple point A's and point B's all along that that continuum. And I think if we look at that and say, how do we integrate that technology in a way that we can trust it, which, you know, in in a more expeditious way, (laughs) saying we can trust this technology, I think that'll really help, help this curve, you know, get moving forward faster. Absolutely. I mean, the saying we're just going to have, we're only going to trust people to daisy chain along and watch the drone. That's that's not really scalable, as you said, but truly building that that framework and looking at what has existed before. Yeah, I can I can tell you, you know, having conversations with a lot of public safety agencies that have adopted drones, you know, hundreds of them. When yeah. they first started talking about them and saying, well, you need to do this in a USS so you can get this activity and then the USS can monitor they were like, well, we don't want people to know where we're operating. And I said, well, I get that. But the reality is, is people monitor radio broadcasts all the time and know exactly where police cars are operating because they monitor the radio. They monitor all these things. And so... Yeah, police scanner. <laughs> exactly. So there's there's always, you know, there's always bad people. When they invented the car, you know, it was all for good things, but people still use cars for bad things. So those things will still happen as an industry. You know, it's unavoidable. But the reality is that, you know, 99.9% of the people who get behind the wheel of a car are doing it with the best intentions, the safe intentions, and all of this possible. That's how the industry's evolved. It's not, it's not a bad industry, you know, and there's so many things. I think why it's so important, why it's so important, I'll make this my last point about the U.S. to really be the leadership in this space is the derivative technologies that come out of this space are absolutely crucial to the U.S. economy moving forward. We have things like uh, blockchain, AI, 
as technologies, we have different types of uh, propulsion, you know, hydrogen propulsion, hybrid propulsion, all of these things are going to fuel the next industrial revolution. And it's so important for the U.S. to maintain a leadership role in this. We just can't cede this to another country. Mm, we, we can't fall behind. And uh, many have argued that we already are. So there's, it's time to catch up. Yes, yes. Or, or we're, on the, we're on the precipice of doing such. Yes. Sure. <laughs> and that's where the work that you're doing at New Air and bringing industry together and creating this corridor, creating trust, showing Hey, let's you know we don't have to trust the whole United States uh, for everybody to have drones flying over them, but let's just take a little section and show and prove what that trust looks like and what it enables to all of these people down below. Well, this has been a super fascinating conversation. I'm so glad you can join us on the show. Some of the things that I've taken away is how you know a lot of what we're doing with drones and in aviation really has its uh, has been birthed out of what we've seen with cars and how you've taken uh, not just looking at cars, but also with wireless technology and phones, how when you coalesce all these different systems and people and organizations together, how you can still manage trust and ensure that uh, that what you're enabling is better uh, as the combined effect rather than each individually. And so the, the path forward in scaling drones and uh, scaling this autonomous world is really uh, the linchpin. And that sounds like it's it's enabling that trust from everyone on the ground, from the regulatory side, and also from everybody who's working uh, together to bring all of the uh, disparate data together. But for all of those listening, those are just some of the things that I've taken away. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Please comment them, share them, tweet them. Uh, we'd love to hear them. And uh, if there's anything that you learn in particular, uh, from Ken Stewart here about New Air uh, and what all of the awesome things they're doing. Please let us know. We might share them on the next episode. Uh, Ken, what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you online and hear more of your perspective? Sure, a couple of ways. Uh, they can always reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, Ken Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. Um, they can also reach out to New Air at www.newair.org. Um, they can reach out to anybody in my organization that way, and that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of us. Fantastic. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for the for the opportunity. Appreciate it. And to all those tuning in, join us next time on The Trust Revolution. Mm-hmm.